we might guava a problem with following through on our priorities. This week, council chambers are full of people speaking to council, as is their democratic right. I'll get into why that's stupid and why they shouldn't. Meanwhile, we're back to an old refrain. City administration doesn't seem to be prioritizing council's strategic direction in the day-to-day operations of the city. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 15, right? I lose track. It's an amount that is bigger than 10 and less than 100. We'll get there eventually. This week, we're going to jump right into our rapid-fire segment, uh, Calgary voted not to pursue the 2026 Olympics in their non-binding plebiscite. This leaves the province in the unenviable position of answering if that $700 million they pledged can be put to other public benefit initiatives now, or if it was exclusively money for the IOC. Among some of the pitched options were the long-standing needs like finishing Calgary's Green Line, affordable housing investments, or combating homelessness. Personally, I'm hoping for 160 notly bucks. Five years after the Metroline signaling system was due to be completed, and less than a month until the final deadline after which the city will terminate the contract because of Thales' inability to deliver, signal testing occurred on the Metroline last Saturday. Thales described it as a non-event. During this non-event, there were several issues with alarm notifications going off. If you're a betting man or a woman, make sure you don't take the Metroline to the casino to place your bets. You probably won't get there on target frequency. A global Edmonton report says that the 15-block stretch down 106th Street contains almost 220 street signs, or roughly 15 every block. Some back-of-the-napkin math I did with some of the numbers I got when I talked to administration about lowering the speed limits in Hazeldean leads me to believe that this cost probably around $5,000 per block on just signs, or 60 k for the whole stretch. Perhaps this is actually a low-cost solution to the issue of removing trees along the valley line. If we just install a bike lane beside the train and paint the signs green, it'll look like we have a forest on every block. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And this week, we're going to talk to you about Back to School Again, a podcast about people who made the decision in midlife to return to school, either to pursue a new career or augment their current career, or just for the sheer challenge of learning something new. It chronicles the personal journey of host Katrina Ingram, who is back in school after more than two decades away. It's made possible with the support of Norquest College in Edmonton, which recently opened the Innovation Studio. We recorded an episode, the Mel Innovation Hub episode in that Innovation Studio. It was real nice. Uh, You can find all the episodes and the show notes at backtoschoolagain.ca. So today, uh, it's Thursday, recording this one day early, but Council Chambers, right as we're speaking, is getting through their first panel of 18 speakers for the public hearing on the budget, there are 172 registered speakers to speak to council about the budget. Isn't budget time wonderful? It brings everyone together, doesn't it? Uh, It does bring people into a room. I will say that. (laughs) So just back of the napkin math, when you're speaking to council, you get five minutes to talk. So with 172 speakers, that's over 14 and a half hours of just speaking time. That doesn't include questions from councillors. The... Public hearing is scheduled to run from 1.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. with a half-day overflow tomorrow if they run out of time. That if they run out of time is really... No longer needed. (laughs) Yeah. And that doesn't include questions, as you say. So they're doing panels of 18, which means in theory, council could ask questions of all of those 18 folks after they're done speaking. Yeah. I can't imagine they will. No, um, I can't imagine they want to be there very much after hour eight or so of just hearing people talk. 
and likely talk about the same thing again and again and again. Because one of the problems with this, of course, is you don't know who's speaking. There's no opportunity to coordinate what you're going to say or make sure that you've brought something new to the table, right? So council's going to hear a lot of the same thing, I imagine. And in fact, you can't even choose the order in which you're speaking. So even if you did coordinate with your friends, you can't guarantee who's going to speak first or second. Right. So as you said off the top, this is people's democratic right to be able to go and talk to council, to have a a forum to talk to their elected officials about what they care about and what's important to them. Um, We were talking a little bit about what this means, though, for the process uh, in order to get things done at the city. And we'll get into that a little bit more. The other thing I'll say, though, about people speaking at council is that it's quite intimidating Uh, not everybody is comfortable. Not everybody is able to go say in the afternoon to city council to leave their job, to go and speak in front of council. So you, by definition, probably exclude a bunch of people that council probably should be hearing from. They're not going to be in that 172 people speaking at council. So if it is the most effective way to be heard, that's a problem. Yeah. So enough with the sort of preamble and beating around the bush. Let's get down to the thesis (laughs) of this statement which is speaking to council is stupid, it shouldn't be allowed, and council should really be addressing this problem yesterday. So I'll elaborate on that thesis. This sort of percolated in my mind and solidified about a year and a half to two years ago when Councillor Andrew he made the motion to allow more democratization of the speaking to council process. Because right now, you don't know exactly when you're going to speak, so you have to sit around for a couple hours. That can get expensive with childcare. People have to take time off work. It's actually quite an arduous process to go speak. It's an investment. Yeah. Um, So, Councillor Knack said, well, we'll make this easier. We'll allow people to Skype in or phone in or something like that. And at that point, it sort of became clear to me that this is ridiculous. If you're phoning to speak to council, you can already do that. All of the councillor's office have a phone number. You can call your counselor and any, staff and their staff at any point in time. And you can have a detailed, in-depth conversation with them, not just five minutes of talking at them. And the flip side of that is if you make it very, very much easier to speak to council, you're going to get a lot more people doing it. It's the same argument we make for free transit. If you reduce the barrier and cost of entry, demand is going to increase naturally. And that's a waste of everyone's time counselors we actually pay them quite a bit of money and we want them to decide things when you're spending five minutes that's five minutes that they're not deciding on an issue or moving or you know actually dealing with constituent issues in a material manner they're just sitting in a chair listening to some joe schmo talk that is a problem in of itself and it leads to the bigger problem of when you're speaking to counsel just that you're allowed to do it it sort of devalues all the other communication mediums just intrinsically by implication. Because if you can speak directly face-to-face to all of them and have them ask questions and do it in front of the media and get on the public record, that just feels, and you and I have had the same experience, we both know it is more important than sending an email or phoning the counselor. And that's a problem because like you said, it's expensive, it's complex, and not everyone is able to do it. So honestly, and this is where I tend to get into a a lot of disagreements, I don't think anyone should be able to speak to counsel. I think the easiest way is to rip the bandaid off, improve the other methods of communicating with your counselor, and just not have people waste the public time at meetings. I'm all for improving the other methods of communication. I think that would be a really good thing. 
Um, you know, this brings up the question of the number of counselors that we have, and we've not increased the size of council, even though the population has been increasing. So they've got more constituents to serve than they might have in the past. And if we had more counselors, maybe those other methods of communication would be a little bit easier to deal with um, than just having, you know, because when you go to counsel, you're kind of forcing the issue in a lot of ways, right? If you send an email or you make a phone call or you send a letter or something like that, there's no reply right away. There's no conversation. You're, you're really kind of at the whim of their time or their staff's time about whether or not you're going to get a response and whether or not it's going to have any kind of an impact. Whereas if you go to counsel and you're able to say that thing in front of other people, as you say, sort of on the public record, you kind of force their hand a little bit. They have to make some kind of a response right then and there. Well, and this is another thing that I've lamented because sure, you can FOIP a counselor's email inbox, but if a counselor receives 100 emails opposing a thing and one email supporting a thing, that counselor can then go to the public meeting and say, I got a lot of emails. Or I've heard both sides or whatever the case. They can spin that how they like. Yeah, right? when people show up at council and there's 13 people speaking one way and one person right. speaking against that, it sets a narrative in sort of the public eye. Edmonton was just named Canada's most open city again, I think third year in a row, fourth time overall. Maybe that's an argument in favor of opening up these email boxes. I don't know. I think that's actually an argument in how low the bar is set by the other Canadian <laughs> cities. But yes, that's that's part of it. We need to enfranchise those other communication mediums to be better to avoid this specific problem. You sort of got this with Andrew Nack's motion last year. They said, we don't want to waste time debating about ourselves we want to actually solve the city issues sure but go to every public hearing and just that has this big panel of speakers obviously not most of them don't have 172 but you still get the tower issues where you'll have 40 50 speakers and that's a good five six hours of time it starts to add up counselors could save themselves a lot of grief by Ripping the Band-Aid off and addressing this issue. There are a lot, though, where there's very few speakers, maybe as few as one. Yeah, um, and those one might actually be those people who are comfortable speaking in front of crowds and, you know, have a job that enables that and have a lot of privilege. Oh, actually, you spoke at council this week, didn't you? Speak of the devil. I did. I spoke at executive committee on Tuesday this week. There was an item on the agenda about the advertising agreement that the city of Edmonton has with Post Media. And I felt compelled to go and talk to them uh, this time about it. This is the third time now that they've uh, approved this advertising agreement with Post Media. It's made up of two key things. It's kind of key to know here. There's legally required advertising. This is when we say there's a public hearing coming up or a new bylaw or something like that. And then general advertising, things about, you know, rec centers or whatever. And we pay Post Media for that legally required advertising because it used to be required by the Municipal Government Act that we put it in a newspaper. And about how much order of magnitude are we paying Post Media? It's about $500,000 a year for the legally required ads, another $400,000 a year for the other advertising. So since 2008, we've spent over $7 million on advertising just in the Edmonton Journal, not counting the other publications. Uh, so amendments this year to the MGA make it possible for cities, municipalities to pass a bylaw that says we can do this legal advertising in a different way. And so I thought it was important to talk to council about my view on that. And uh, that's what I did at exec committee on Tuesday. What's the standard? Because the MGA sets a standard for legally required advertising. What does that advertising actually have to do? So in the previous regulations, it had to be circulating in a newspaper that circulates within that general municipality for a period, I think it was of two weeks or something like that, in advance of the public hearing, for instance, or the meeting. Um, with the amendments, what they've said is that council can pass a bylaw and 
as long as they're uh, comfortable that it will reach a substantial number of residents or citizens, then that's fine. So it's kind of up to each council to decide what that means. So I look at that and I say, the city of Edmonton has as many likes on its Facebook page as the Edmonton Journal does. They've got a pretty broad reach in digital tools. And don't send me email about not everyone having access to the internet. We have amazing libraries that are always full of people on the computers. I think you can make an argument that the city already can reach a substantial number of Edmontonians without the help of the media. And so for me, running Taproot Edmonton, which is the producer of this podcast, I think there's an opportunity for council to do more than just reach a substantial number of Edmontonians. I think there's an opportunity for them to say this old form of traditional media is not working. We've heard the mayor talk about this already, actually, how he'd like the city to maybe put more money into storytelling on its own. And that's actually in the budget. It's one of the things communications put forward in the budget. Um, I think there's value in having an independent third party like Taproot. And so I just wanted to make that case to them. Mm, yeah, so you were making the business pitch to the City business Castle. Pitch. Just and, you know, I wasn't expecting them to say, okay, let's give you $3.5 million and stop uh, going forward with Post Media. They went forward with the agreement because they get some preferential pricing. Um, we were talking about this before, so why did I do it? Maybe there's an element of grandstanding, sure. Uh, I didn't expect the media would cover this. They don't write about themselves. The media does not cover one another. Media Monday that I've been doing on my blog for years is what covers the media in Edmonton. They don't talk about themselves. For me, it was about the process, which you were talking about earlier. This was a way to increase the sense of urgency around this topic. If I go to council and I hear council on the record say, we agree with Mr. Mail, and administration hears council say that, it changes the level of urgency that administration takes away from that conversation. And in this case, they did say that. And administration also said they agreed with Mr. Mail. So if we're all in agreement, then surely we can move more quickly and make this happen. Yeah. And I've had the same experience. I've spoken at council several times and there's never been a time where I sort of just surprise councillors by showing up. It always proceeded by I'm working with their offices trying to actually get this issue solved. Right. And then when I'm unsatisfied with their motivation to actually solve the issue, then I go to speak at council and I design my speech to be embarrassing to either administration or council and then hope that I get some retweets on Elise, formerly Elise Stolte live <laughs> tweeting. And then in the media scrums, they come and then I can make an embarrassing media story. That's that's my modus operandi. And that's that's unfortunate because like, again, we're mentioning this is the democratically, this is how you're supposed to interact with your public officials. But I'm just there doing political theater. So council did ask me, you know, about the reception of administration and stuff. And I had met with members of administration to talk about this. They were very receptive. You know, they we had great conversation about it. I had met with members of the mayor and councillor's offices to talk about this before I ever got to council. So just like you, there's already some conversation happening. Um, but there's something different that happens when it comes up at a city council meeting. There's a different sense of urgency or importance. I don't know if it's the fact that it's on the record or just that they both get the opportunity to hear one another in an official capacity, administration and council. Uh, but it changes when you go and speak. And I know council really values, Councillor Knack's motion notwithstanding, they really value seeing somebody show up and be face-to-face. -face. Like, that makes a significant difference in their minds, I think. And it's a problem, given everything we've said about accessibility, but it really makes a difference in their mind. At the risk of going back on my thesis and devil's advocating myself, sure. Uh, you mentioned you were, again, the only person speaking on this because 
in fairness, no one cares. This is typically a rubber stamp kind of agreement, yeah. right? I think maybe they were surprised that I registered at all. Well, and I've I've spoken at both sides. I've done ones where I'm the only person speaking and I've done one where I'm part of a panel and there's several people. Right. And like it is today with 172 speakers, council's not asking any questions because right. they don't have time. But on some of the items where I was the only speaker... I was sort of treated like an expert. Like I got a long series of back and forth question and answers with all of cancel, which there was a lot of value in that because it really got my opinions out in the forefront. But the other half of it is it allowed the counselors to debate each other through me. And that's sort of undersold. When you have a member of the public, you can, as a counselor, ask them, well, don't you think we should do this? Right. And then they're just fishing for me to say, yes, I rubber stamp this idea. And then say, well, look, the public supports my idea. Right. When it's just them in debate, they're politically grandstanding and, you know, it's butting heads. But speaking through the public, there's a bit of an advantage to that. This is the value of it. And the value is substantially diminished when more people show up, which is sort of like the opposite of how you should think about democracy. Sure. Yeah. But by making the process more accessible to the people you want to show up, I find you actually diminish the value of the process overall. And fully recognizing that I'm a white guy on a podcast that I produce saying this, I recognize the irony and the little bit of cringe coming, but I'm putting that out there. Um, That's one of the very real concerns we have to think about when we're reforming this process is if we're talking about getting additional voices, if the act of getting those voices into the room diminishes the value of those voices, we've done ourselves a huge disservice. But we'll move on. Enough about speaking to counsel. There was a tweet from Andrew Knack on Saturday that um, I was at the event he was tweeting about. I was too, yep. And did you have the exact same thought of Andrew Knack as you were there? As we walked up, got off the bus, we're like, this is bizarre. Why are there thousands of people scrunched into this tiny little bit of sidewalk and cars barreling through. So what we're talking about is All Is Bright, the event on 124th Street that, you know, it's the business associations, rah, rah, 124. They kick off to Christmas, light some trees. Santa says hello. Yeah, it's quite an event. But set the scene. What did it look like? So in previous years, they've done this further south on 124th Street near what's called the High Street area, right? So 102nd Avenue. And in past years, they've actually closed the street. Uh, or at least substantially close the street so people can mill about and walk walk around and there's no cars getting in the way. This year they moved it up to 108th Avenue, which is right where the 124th Street Grand Market takes place on Thursday nights, which is a great location, except they kept 124th Street completely open, which means you've got lots of traffic going right through the middle of this big festival. In fairness, there was a small fence on one lane of one street right beside the park. But a tiny entrance to get into that, which meant as people crossed the street when the light finally changed, you had this huge throng of people standing outside on the road and cars had to kind of wait to go around or get frustrated and zip around the pedestrians as they often do. So it's really bizarre that we have this festival. It's not the first time it's gone on. It's happened other years. No, it's a premier festival. I was excited about going to All is Bright. This was actually my first All is Bright I've ever attended. But you'd heard about it and that's why you wanted to go. So it's bizarre that we seem to have taken a step backward. And it was really interesting to me that Councillor Knack tweeted about this and tweeted about it with a sense of incredulity that was like, I'm a counselor and I 
pretty sure that I've agreed to the direction that we want to have, you know, more pedestrian friendly spaces. We want to have outdoor winter events. We want to make that a vibrant part of our city. So why do we have the street open? We'll quote his tweet right here. He said, it just felt so odd to see thousands of people trying to navigate such a constrained space when there was so much available space that could have been used. Let's let our main streets be main streets once in a while. Hashtag yeg, hashtag yeg events. So this is hearkening back to even our uh, original episode where we have this policy and direction that we've set up as a city. We have council actively on the street tweeting and endorsing this direction. And yet we don't have follow through on this direction. It seems like a real breakdown here. There's a couple things I think that are at play here, right? So one is, and I'm on record on Twitter many times of complaining about this, but civic events at the city of Edmonton is a major problem area. So this is supposed to be the one-stop shop that you go to when you want to book a festival or an event, you want to close a street, you need a license for something. And their default answer to everything is no. And it's really quite challenging to get them to a yes. And most people give up along the way. The other thing is, there's quite a bit of expense involved here. And we've heard this from other festivals that costs for civic services are going up. So on the one hand, as the city, as council's direction, we want to support these festivals. We want to see more of them. On the other hand, we're charging them more and more money to do that. And I get that there's a cost involved when you have to reroute buses and all those types of things. You have to have people to put up the closure barriers. Like there's some costs involved, but it shouldn't be as expensive as it is if we're if we're serious about treating our streets like main streets. And I think a third thing is you know, winter festival funding. So we have given funding to things like deep freeze or to things like silver skate as a city. And that's a good thing. But why don't these guys get funding? Is it because they're part of the BIA? Like, should that matter as much as it seems to? It doesn't seem like they were given the same kind of opportunity to make this winter festival happen successfully and grow as maybe some of those others have. Well, no. And in fact, when I went there with some friends who were also, it was their first all is bright and they'd heard great things. And all of our reactions sort of going there is, that's it? Because, like you said, there was just wasn't enough space for events. Right. Like, you know, you go to something like Flying Canoe and there's axe throwing and sled races and it's, you know, a whole hurrah. This one, it was tiny people jam-packed shoulder to shoulder in a little park and then jam-packed shoulder to shoulder on the sidewalks. It was purely a space issue and they decreased the space from previous years. And... Bob from Calgary, who's actually from Edmonton, <laughs> uh, he was posting on Twitter and he made the really salient point. Um, you know, if it costs, like you said, there's costs associated with rerouting buses and closing down a street. If that costs $15,000, why is it incumbent on the festival to provide that fifteen grand? Why isn't the inverse true? If commuters want to run an arterial through this one day a year festival that everyone enjoys, why shouldn't? the roadway have to make the argument that, you know, we're going to pay $15,000 to run through this. Absolutely. You think about this and when you follow it to its logical conclusion, this is a subsidy for vehicle traffic. That's that's what it is at the end of the day. And it's a value statement that cars are more important and deserve more of that space than pedestrians. And not even just pedestrians, festivals. We're a festival city. That's one of our identities as a city of Edmonton. And yet we've decided, you know, a festival that really, it's not even a whole day festival. It is, starts at like four and Coastal ends at eight, like, nine. yeah, eight. It's four or five hours and running an arterial through it is more important than those four or five hours. That's a weird statement of values, but not the only weird statement of values. We're 
Continuing the story from last week about the $1.4 million that we might save by closing three rec centers, and there was a bit of an update this week. I imagine that many of the 172 people that Counselor is going to hear from are going to talk about this issue, um, but there's been some reaction now from city administration about this issue. They've been asked about it. The community leagues involved have been quite vocal over the last week. They were caught off guard. Um, that these challenge panels that the city has set up to help them with this program and service review, which is where this recommendation came from. You know, these challenge panels are private. The report is private. It won't be made available until later. And, you know, administration is kind of saying that they've looked at the financial costs of this, and that's where these recommendations came from, which I find really interesting when the whole program and service review plan it talks literally in the first page probably a dozen times about alignment with priorities and strategic direction. It's not just about cost cutting. So it's quite interesting that that's the statement that administration has come out with. And they are trying to push this off to council and are saying, like, we're not going to deal with this until actually until after we've gotten some direction from city council on what to do here. And I would argue they've already gotten several directions through the several policies and through our guiding city documents that basically said, no, this plan is stupid. Get your heads out of your rear ends. Like, what What are you doing? Right. Um, but yeah, it was a weird, bizarre walk back this week from administration because, you know, last week they're saying, you know, this is we have to make the hard choices and we have to and they were pushing through this through as a recommendation. And now it's, oh, well, no, we're just doing our due diligence and providing the information to council to make the decision. It's interesting how far they walked back. But some of the other commentary like the journal did some reporting on this which everyone should go read of course it'll be in the show notes their justification for closing down these rec centers i found completely bizarre because when you're talking about anything you break it down to an appropriate denominator if you're right. talking about traffic deaths you don't say oh well you know olds alberta has less traffic deaths than edmonton so the solution is we need to reduce the size of Edmonton to two square kilometers. Like, that's absurd. You need to break it down per capita because that makes sense. The city of Edmonton, when they're breaking down these numbers, they said, well, these pools that are small community pools, single-built purpose facilities, they have less attendance than our mega rec centers. Therefore, we shouldn't operate them. And it's in the case of Oliver Pool, they said, you know, Oliver Pool specifically has much less attendance than uh, our other pools, our other outdoor pools of comparable size. And Emma L. Graney was on, she was on Twitter saying, oh, every time I've been to Oliver, it's been packed. And the Oliver Community League said they were maybe expecting the arena to be closed, but they were caught off guard by the suggestion that they close the pool. And the thing is, the Oliver pool is packed all the time. It has reduced hours compared to right. the other pools. So it is as full as the other pools. The city just won't let it open longer hours. And the Oliver Community League specifically said they fought and weren't able to get it open longer. So to your point, it's not a fair comparison. The, they're using one number to try to justify this without taking into account how to make that common denominator across the comparison. Yeah, and it's the same thing. They said the subsidies of these particular locations, you know, they're more per user than other buildings. And of course, it's because, one, the admission rates to these pools are lower than the mega rec centers. And the mega rec centers, we specifically build these mega rec centers because there's cost savings associated with, you know, operating multiple facilities under one roof. Right. But we also have value statements in our policy about having stuff close to home that's walkable and bikeable. That was not included in any of the analysis in this program and service review, which was bizarre. 
Yeah, that is not what city administration came forward with as justification. I mean, how could they? The strategic direction is pretty clear. We want to encourage density, not reduce it. And so closing these facilities is a, a real knock against that. I think this is going to be an interesting budget issue. If council decides to go forward with the recommendation and close these facilities, I think that's a pretty dangerous litmus test for city plan and all of the stuff that's coming up when we have to file a new municipal uh, you know, plan, development plan in, in the next couple of years. It won't bode well for going beyond the way ahead and the way we grow and the things that came before. It'll almost be like a step backward. Yeah, we'll have to watch this one. Uh, we're almost out of time, but there's a couple other quick items I wanted to get through. Uh, one is we had some more scramble intersections get installed this week, and you had some positive experiences there. Yeah, I live on 104th Street downtown, uh, right near 102nd Avenue. So we're, we've got the scramble intersection at 104 and Jasper, and it's amazing. It's awesome. I love it. You can cross in any direction, and I think traffic flow is actually a lot better now, too, because you don't have to wait to turn left. Uh, for pedestrians. And so one of the new proposed locations is 104th Street and 104th Avenue, which is right outside Rogers Place and the Mercer Warehouse. And I'm really thrilled about this because that intersection for a pedestrian is atrocious. It takes forever for the light to change. I've been there sometimes during rush hour where they skip phases. So like the pedestrian light never changes and it's a beg button. You have to press the button in order for the walk sign to come up. Uh, so it's just terrible as a pedestrian. So I'm really looking forward to having a scramble intersection there. And it is installed as of today. It is operational and people are testing out, including Wayne Gretzky. He was photographed trying out the new scramble. Looking happy as Wayne Gretzky often does. One of the uh, chief architects behind, not architect, I'm sorry, engineers, but Planning-wise, the architects of this idea was Olga Messinis, who, if you're an active transportation fanatic, you absolutely love her. She's done amazing things with the city of Edmonton. She was one of the chief rah-rah, get this done behind the downtown bike grid. She's not within the Office of Traffic Safety, the Vision Zero team. Right. So when we're looking at the actual material changes that have changed bike and pedestrian and traffic safety for the better and actually implemented the goals of Vision Zero. Very few of it comes from the actual Vision Zero team, which we're funding from photo radar dollars and actually setting a budget for Vision Zero. It's coming from the actual transportation operation people outside. This leads me to my second frustration that I had with this this week. I went and saw Bohemian Rhapsody in the downtown movie theater. Uh, it's not a movie review show. I'm not going to tell you what I thought about that. You can tweet me about that later. There's other podcasts in the Alberta Podcast Network. Check them out. There was 30 seconds before the movie started where I saw a very familiar whisper. Do you remember what whisper that is? Was it in the dark? Yeah, it was outsmart the dark. There was a movie theater ad. How much did we pay to put that stupid garbage ad in a movie theater? I was beyond livid. There were people around me and I, I was actively angry i was yelling at the person <laughs> beside me and i'm like we wasted so much money on this garbage ad that does nothing to assign response i was mad um so if you have seen the ad in a movie theater tweet me at the city of edmonton and at don iverson saying cut this in the budget you can't even find that in the budget there was another story this week that we don't have time to talk about but it was about budget the, the sort of report card on budgets and Edmonton's report card was pretty far down the list. But if you want to find out how much we've spent on ads in the budget, you can't do it. It's mixed in with all the other profiles. It's not a very clear thing to find. We're going to have to call it there. We It was a busy week and weeks are going to get busier. I'm sure we'll have stuff to cover next week, but that's all we have time for this week. 
At Speaking Municipally, we budget for ads too, and you've got one for us. I do. We've talked a bunch on this show in the past about innovation, so we thought it was time to mention Alpha Beta, which is ATB Financial's attempt to improve banking through technology and transformation. ATB has its own AI lab, and they're exploring a variety of ways to innovate using robotics, AI, blockchain, and a whole bunch of other newfangled technologies. You can learn more at atbalphabeta.com. And that's all for this week. Uh, we're, of course, a production of taprootedmonton.ca, and there's some news. There is. We told you previously, I think, that we were nominated for a Canadian Online Publishing Award for our municipal election microsite that we did last year. And I'm pleased to report that we won silver last night, Wednesday night, at the COPA Awards for Best Infographic or Interactive for that election microsite. So you can still check that out at yegvote.taprootedmonton.ca. You can go to regular taprootedmonton.ca to find out all the stories. And until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Man, uh, speaking municipally is so much easier when you're back in the room with a person. Night and day. <laughs> <laughs>